0: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker
1: bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation science and responsible hunting in canada hey everyone it's mark hall and you're listening to the round canada podcast Well, my leading story here for uh, December is Bill C-21, Gun Control Bill C-21, which was labeled as the Handgun Bill, has passed the third reading in the Senate and will now become law in Canada. So officially can no longer uh, purchase, transfer... Uh, a handgun and any handguns that are in legally being held by Canadians right now, they will have to relinquish those if they don't want them anymore. They can't sell them or transfer them and they can't become the handguns can't become part of their estate passed on to, to their family. So even um, antique collections of handguns, uh, anything like that, you can no longer keep those uh, as part of your estate. One of the things that surprised a lot of analysts and pundits about the Senate passing C-21 went through the three readings is that no edits or changes were made to the bill in the Senate, uh, which apparently is pretty rare. But in this case, the Senate uh, reviewed and uh, approved Bill C-21 unchanged is how it was written by the federal government. So it's kind of weird. Now, a year ago, Bill C-21 was had extra controversy around it because the federal government introduced two amendments to the bill that caught everybody by surprise. And rather than dealing with handguns, it introduced two amendments that ended up identifying uh, some common semi-automatic uh, shotguns and hunting rifles. Uh, hunting shotguns and hunting rifles that were going to be included as prohibited weapons there was a big uh, political backlash uh, about that and the government rescinded those um, those two amendments if I remember right there was like 500 and something additional long rifles that were going to be included in the handgun ban so what folks are worried about now that C21 has passed is that the federal government will use uh, order and councils to then go back to that original list and start identifying rifle by rifle and shotgun by shotgun and putting them on a prohibited list. An order in council is basically a regulatory tool that a government in power has so that it can actually enact laws. Um, You know, there's limits around its use, but they can enact laws that don't have to go through debate in the House or they don't have to go to uh, Senate. It's supposed to be an order in council, as I understand it, it's supposed to be just, it's a tool that allows an elected government to just do the business of being the government without every single one of their regulatory decisions having to go through um, debates and votes. It's controversial that the federal government has used OICs uh, in the case of the assault quote-unquote assault weapon ban that preceded c21 but the big concern now is that they're going to come back and start bringing all of those firearms which could include some hunting long long guns into uh, the prohibited list i would be quite surprised with the beating that the federal government took over those amendments to bill c21 that they would do that uh going into their their uh, standings in the polls right now are incredibly low and i would be really surprised if they touched anything to do with introducing more guns on a prohibited list unless they get elected uh in 2024 we just released a new episode of the Hunter Conservationist podcast on an update on the gun control debate in Canada. Uh, Our guest was Rod Giltaka from, he's the CEO and president of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. And you know, one of the things we talked about at the very end of that podcast is what hunters can do to get involved in this fight over gun control in this country. And basically one of the best ways you can get involved is to get a membership in an organization that's fighting for your right to own firearms. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, the CCFR. Uh, there are other national organizations that are lobbying and fighting against the gun control bills and organizations that are also standing up for your firearms rights are the provincial and territorial uh, hunting and angling uh, federations and associations. So even if you're a member of your provincial uh, federation, they will have a firearms um, policy and advocacy campaigns around that. And they'll be actively engaging uh, MPs uh, in the province and both in Ottawa over um, concerns of their members. So if you want to join a national uh, Firearms Rights Organizations or your Provincial Hunting and Angling Federation. That's what we're urging people to do. Uh, Putting numbers and some money behind memberships of the people that are on the front lines of lobbying against these bills is one of the most powerful things you as an individual hunter can do uh, to continue fighting against these restrictions on hunting shotguns and rifles. These organizations are going to ramp up their advocacy campaigns prior to the next election. It's probably going to be front and center of the next federal election. So please, in the new year, if you're not a member of an organization that's standing up for firearms rights, uh, make that a New Year's uh, resolution and join an organization. Ontario has... um, the Eastern Gray Wolf, and it's a subspecies of the Gray Wolf. It's also sort of colloquial name is the Algonquin Wolf from a Algonquin um, National Park. Now, the federal government just recently, in early November, introduced an amendment to the Federal Species at Risk Act. It was a rationale statement that was published in the legal uh, gazette Uh, it was available for public comment it's closed now but what they're planning to do what the federal government is planning to do is to uplist the eastern gray wolf from a species of concern to threatened status the rationale statement says that hunting and trapping are the major threats to the eastern wolf, and so it needs to be uplisted from species of concern to a threatened species. Now, the Ontario Fur Management Association and the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters have both submitted written statements to the federal government about this uplisting of the eastern gray wolf, and their arguments are, are very similar in that the government has identified that hunting and trapping are the major threats to the Eastern gray wolf. But the two associations point out that wolf and coyote hunting and trapping in the range of the Eastern gray wolf in Ontario has been closed since 2016. They also point out that one of the issues with the conservation of the Eastern gray wolf is its inbreeding with the eastern coyote. So the eastern gray wolf is actually a little smaller and it's very coyote looking in colorations and patterns uh, and quite different than the larger and more gray and black and white uh, gray wolf of um, western Canada. So they are apparently breeding and hybridizing with eastern coyotes and The Fur Management Association and Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters have pointed out that this is a conservation concern for the eastern grey wolf because of its genetic threat, because of the genetic threat of the eastern grey wolf going extinct because of inbreeding, and because coyote hunting is closed in the range of the eastern grey wolf and trapping, that there's really no management levers within the range of the eastern gray wolf to try to limit the loss of the pure genetics of the eastern gray wolf by uh, concentrating hunting and trapping on the eastern coyote. Both of the two associations also pointed out something that's of kind of great concern is that the government's rationale and uplisting to threatened status for the Eastern gray wolf is that none of its argument took into consideration the current research on the Eastern gray wolf. So when the Eastern gray wolf was first identified as a species of special concern, uh, that spurred a bunch of research on them. And the federation and the fur management association are saying that none of that data on the recent population status of the Eastern gray wolf was considered in the uh, current argument to uplist the, the species. And in fact, the organizations were saying that none of the current research indicates any type of population decline in the eastern gray wolf. Sounds like the two associations have identified some issues with uh, the federal government's argument in uplisting the Eastern Gray Wolf under the Federal Species at Risk Act. So the next step would be uplisting it to an endangered status with federal protection. Now, the crux of this debate, to me, boils down to a section of the rationale statement uh, that I read on uh, the proposal to uplist the Eastern Gray Wolf the federal government, in speaking to non-Indigenous trapping, trappers um, that are trapping Eastern Grey Wolf, or that were trapping uh, uh, the Eastern Grey Wolf, they identified in their argument that the wolf pelt was only worth between 65 and $204. Now, the rationale statement also talked about the recreational value of not the Eastern gray wolf, but just wolves in general. And this is, I'll read this right from the government's rationale statement. Wolves provide recreational value to Canadians and visitors. One zoo even offers a quote unquote sleeping with the wolves experience, in which visitors can reserve a night in lodging that has a direct view of the zoo's wolf enclosure. For $549 a night. So when I read that, I kind of went, "Uh uh-huh. This is why the uplisting is taking place because hunting and trapping is not a threat on the Eastern gray wolf because it's already closed. What they're doing is they're using the Species at Risk Act to lock down and maybe advance closures on all wolf hunting by doing an economic analysis of basically saying wolves in zoos, not necessarily the Eastern gray wolf, just wolves in zoos are worth more than wolves in the wild. And therefore we want to put a threatened status on the Eastern gray wolf. Uh, and it seems to be strictly an economic driven engine here. Now, all of the stories I've covered about the sort of the failure of the federal government using the power of the federal species at risk act uh, all seem to have an economic bottom line in that they don't want to use the power of the federal species at risk legislation to protect fisher wildlife because of its potential impacts on the natural resource industries, industries, commercial fishing, uh, logging to, to, to be uh, uh, the two main drivers. And so this really kind of, this, this Eastern gray wolf um, proposal really seemed to solidify the fact that the federal species at risk act is being used um, to make value statements about what the federal government is willing to not protect and what it wants to signal that it is protecting purely from an economic perspective not hurting the resource industries and also marginalizing hunting and trapping to say that paying 550 bucks a night to sleep in a room and watch wolves in a zoo is worth more than what hunters and trappers put into the pursuit of their endeavors. So kind of weird uh, one. Now <clears throat> I'm going to keep my eye on this, but it won't surprise me in 2024 or maybe beyond that, depending on the results of the next federal election, whether or not we're going to see the same use of the federal species at risk act to protect other wolf populations in the country particularly the one that I'm thinking of are the wolves that live on coastal British Columbia, which they've sort of given the romantic name of sea wolves to and identifying them as a species that needs to be uh, uplisted or or actually listed under the federal species at risk legislation, again, as another mechanism of marginalizing and um, downplaying hunting and trappings contribution to the economy in this country. Now, staying on the topic of wolves, skipping over to British Columbia. Wolves are always a controversial issue. There's, I don't know if you've been following the news, but there's the whole thing about the um, the release of five wolves into Colorado. And they started that, I think, yesterday uh, around the 15th or so of of December, um, the whole ballot initiative in, in Colorado, where people voted that they wanted wolves um, uh, captured and reintroduced into the state, even though they have uh, wolves that are naturalizing or reestablishing themselves in Colorado. So it's a con- wolves are always controversial. One that's always a controversial topic is the wolf control program in British Columbia, that's tied to the caribou recovery programs in the province of recovering endangered caribou so the bc government has a five-year wolf management plan which the government approved last year so they're carrying on with the wolf control program in december january ish time of the year in the caribou recovery areas of north central british columbia they are adding on uh some new um Field work to this program, the wolf control program. And scientists are going to be doing some moose inventories and they're specifically wanting to look at the moose population response in areas that ha- have had continuous intense wolf removal. So they're looking to see if there's been changes over time in moose populations from uh, the intense wolf removal as well. So This one is controversial because all of the animal rights groups are saying that there is no science that supports that British Columbia's wolf control program is in any way helping endangered caribou, uh, which is completely false because there is a strong body of science, of peer-reviewed science out there now that's showing that wolf control and maternal penning and moose density management are all helping endangered caribou herds to increase their population. Now, this whole story, I've covered it a couple of times this year because there was just some like chaotic stuff that went on in eastern Canada on the rivers during the elver fishery. So elvers are baby American eels. The American eel in Canadian waters is considered to be a threatened species However, Fisheries and Oceans in Canada sets a harvest level that's still sustainable under a reduced um, or a smaller population of American eels from historic levels. So there's a commercial harvest and there's a uh, indigenous food social ceremonial harvest that's allowed on the American eels. Earlier this year, um, there was just an absolute chaos on the rivers of indigenous harvesters, the commercial harvesters, and poachers all being on the rivers. They're out there at nighttime, uh, hard for officials to sort out who's who, but these eels are worth like, their weight in gold, uh, in Asia. So that's where they all go. The baby eels go to Asia. They're growing into adult eels. And then they're, um, they go into the, uh, food markets. So if I remember right from a couple of episodes or episodes earlier this year, that, uh, they're worth like $5,000 a kilogram or something. Don't quote me on that, but, but they're worth a lot. And once something gets to be worth that much like like wildlife, then you would get you get you know like organized crime and the illicit wildlife trade gets involved in that in that species and that's what was happening in eastern Canada and it was uh, kind of a, a cluster for DFO officers to be out there at nighttime, uh, lots of people, a lot of aggressive stuff you know uh, officers you know safety was at risk and sometimes they just backed off from from getting in confrontation with with fishermen whether they were legal or or, or poachers a really interesting take on this story that's just come out recently federal government has reported that the exports last year of elvers was an all-time high of 43 tons of elvers were exported out of Canada, which was four times the authorized allowable catch for elvers. So that just talks to the illegal aspect of of this elver fisheries. Now, what confuses me is how the export permits would have been granted if the tonnage was exceeding what the quota was for the year. All I can assume here was, is that export permits are issued and the Elvers are crated up and shipped out of the country. And somewhere after it's all over, somebody in an office somewhere is adding up, you know, everything that was approved for export and went, Hey, there was four times the amount of, Elvers exported than what the catch was allowed. So it wasn't something where, say, wildlife officers at the border that were, you know, uh, responsible for maybe inspecting these shipments before they left the country to catch it. Uh, This was probably something that was caught way after the fact. So Department of Fisheries and Oceans has been um, calling on new regulations to be put in place uh, by March 2024 ahead of the spring elver migration and fisheries in Eastern Canada on the stream. So the, uh, the eels, um, migrate, uh, upstream just like a salmon. Uh, and then when the baby elvers hatch, then the fishery opens, opens up. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next year. If new regulations are put in place and if there's some kind of, um, stricter oversight on exports and and cracking down on when quotas are being exceeded because after all they are a threatened species and if there's going to be any type of fisheries they really got to get a handle on, on on the mixture of legal and illegal take of uh elvers in ontario Uh, the federal government or sorry, the provincial government in Ontario has just made an announcement that part of its effort of combating the invasive wild pig in Ontario is that on January 1st of 2024, some new legislation will kick into place, which is going to phase out ownership and raising of the Eurasian wild boar and their hybrids. So the Eurasian wild boar is native in Eurasia But these are the pigs that have been brought to Canada for you know, commercial purposes that have escaped, that have hybridized with other domestic pigs that have now become these out-of-control invasive pigs that are spreading like fire across the country and threatening to move into the northern United States. So... The Ontario government let's said, let's go to the source of the problem, which are these Eurasian wild boars, and at least on the back end, get those out of the hands of people. So as of January 1st, 2024, uh, I don't know if there's going to be like some grandfathering provisions, if you've had these Eurasian wild boars for like a long time, or if it's just uh, you got until the, the new year. Um, to get rid of Eurasian wild boars hopefully this doesn't lead to people just turning them loose hopefully it leads to a bunch of big barbecues uh, in some backyards and stuff but uh, that is a danger especially when my understanding governments across Canada don't have a really good handle on where the pig operations are and who's owning what Uh, especially Uh, like the hobby farm type things, the commercial pig operations, the big producers, there's good information on that and regulations and whatnot. So if you're talking about some small unlicensed um, ranch operations that, you know, this is the problem, you know, there's been pigs that have broken out of captivity just because they've been aggressive and smash a fence down or dig underneath of it. But then there's also been part of the problem with invasive wild pigs in Canada is farmers are just like, hey, these things are just uh the markets fell out, they're not worth it, too expensive to keep, and they've just turned them loose. Uh, because a lot of the research on where the invasive wild pigs are show the highest densities, these densities are clustered around where there was um boar farming operations. So Anyways, hopefully this works in Ontario and it'll be interesting to see if that um, works its way across Canada. Switching over to um, urban deer management, I've covered this story before, but the city of Longueuil, um, right next to uh, it's a suburb of Montreal, uh, had approved its plan to remove a significant portion of its urban deer this winter. Uh, it's controversial with the animal rights groups and controversial to the point that that mayors several mayors in the city of Longueuil over the years that have helped um put these deer management plans in place and their city councils have approved them have got death threats over this issue it's it's nuts so they approved uh for for this year uh a Uh, Another call, I think it was to reduce the herd from 115 to like between 10 and 15 animals or something of that order of magnitude. Animal rights group took uh, the city of Longueuil to court, which has held up um, the uh, control program this fall. But just recently, the Quebec's Court of Appeal, uh, actually was back in October, upheld the decision that... um, upheld the city's decision authorizing a crossbow hunt uh, after the animal rights group had taken them to court. Now, I mean, these deer are going to get harvested. They're going to go to the food banks. Everybody knows how tight things are for families in Canada with the price of groceries and the carbon tax that's driving up food prices the crazy thing about this is, this is literally food, which will probably be an annual event, venison that'll go to families in need in the city of Longueuil. But on top of that, this legal fight this year cost the city of Longueuil $375,000. Now, imagine what the city could have done with $375,000 just under the auspices of helping out families in need of food. But the animal rights group, in standing up for not wanting a deer cull, ate up literally $375,000 that could have been helping humans. They're white tailed deer. They are prolific breeders. They're probably going to replenish their numbers within a year after the control program. But This is what these animal rights do. Um, The deer is more important than people, um, and they cost the city a ton of money and time. Jumping up to the Yukon, uh, this is a story about a grizzly bear in the Yukon. I don't know if you've ever seen these. They're quite famous photographs by a, a wildlife photographer in the Yukon of these grizzly bears that are out in the wintertime in a stream that doesn't freeze up, that still has salmon in it, I believe. And these photographs of these bears are like, they're completely covered in ice. Just every hair is like an icicle because they're in the water and it's minus 30 or whatever. And these really kind of crazy pictures, beautiful pictures of these bears well, the one of the most famous bears that was photographed by this photographer uh, was recently found dead uh, outside the community of um, Klukshu in the Yukon. This bear uh, that was sort of the, uh, whatever you want to call him, the celebrity bear of these photographs uh, was also known by locals as the mayor of Klukshu. He was a big boar, apparently was very well-behaved, um, lived around the community, never caused any problems, never threatened anybody, never broke into stuff. People in the community apparently have said that he was actually like a guardian uh, because he was a big old dominant bear. He was making sure that subadult bears that generally are the ones that cause uh, problems with break-ins and garbage and all that kind of stuff. He was keeping them out of the community. So in mid December or mid November, uh, the photographer was up there and couldn't find this big old bear. Heard some ravens. Went over and found a stripped-off carcass. The head and hide had been taken off, uh, like a like a hunter uh, that didn't take the meat; that just took the the fur and the head. And so that's caused a bit of a <clears throat> uproar in the community in the Yukon. So just recently, the so it's legal to hunt grizzly bears in the Yukon there's a hunting season season Um, residents can buy a tag you can hunt grizzly bears there's lots of them but officials in the Yukon have said that they have charged a licensed hunter under the Wildlife Act in the Yukon in connection with this carcass that was found of this famous bear um, just outside of Klukshu. Now they haven't released any details of what those charges were um they did say license hunter so it's like was this grizzly bear season closed uh was it in a no shooting area was he supposed to uh remove the meat and never did like i i, I don't know the circumstances uh if you know anything about it uh if there's stories floating around out there that i haven't come across let me know but anyways uh somebody has been charged for shooting the mayor of (laughs) Klukshu. Now, another bear poaching incident uh, that happened in British Columbia in 2021 in the town of Tofino on coastal BC, that a individual has been charged with killing a black bear and her cub uh, it's said during a closed season, but it's actually illegal to kill any bear uh, in a family unit. So you can't kill cubs with the mother. Or you can't kill the mother that has cubs, even if there is an open, uh, like if it is the bear season. So regardless of in or out of season, killing a sow and her cub was, <clears throat> was an offense under the wildlife act in BC. So the interesting part about this story is the individual that poached these two bears uh, using a crossbow and a longbow, or one of the two, it was done by archery, got an $11,000 fine and 30 days in jail. And I don't know whether a wildlife poaching infraction in the province has ever resulted in a jail term, but this could be a landmark uh, case poaching case conviction in the province of BC, but uh, this fella's got thirty days in jail now. I know lots of people are going to say that's not long enough, and put him in jail for you know for life, or you know or ten years, or something like that. So, but anyways, uh, it's an interesting start to that precedent uh, in a court in the province of BC of a person going to prison. Over a poaching incident. Interesting. Now, another weird case in British Columbia has to do with the story that I've covered before about the deer cull that is taking place right now or is over in uh, the National Park on Sydney Island off the coast of BC. And Parks Canada undertook a cull uh, here early in December. Of the fallow deer and as well any of the native coastal blacktails, uh, all got killed as well. So Parks Canada just went, We hate deer because they eat vegetation in the national park, and we're going to kill both the introduced non native fallow deer as well as all the native deer. So that kind of like rubbed people the wrong way, besides the fact that it was an aerial cull, which gets everybody uh, up in arms, anyways. The other controversial part about the cull was that the Parks Canada was saying there's, there was like 900 fallow deer. They're uh, stripping all the vegetation in the national park. Others are saying that the estimates of deer might only be around like 150 or something like that. So there's this wide discrepancy in how many deer, fallow deer were actually on the island or were actually using the national park the killing of both the non-native fallow deer and the native black-tailed deer was controversial. And the other controversial aspect was that a scientist at the University of British Columbia said that his research actually showed that normal regulated hunting that was being orchestrated on the private lands around the national park were actually effectively working and there's been a 30% increase in the productivity of the plants and the ecosystem in the national park because of just regular licensed hunting being used to control the deer. So, anyways, there's this whole controversy going on around the deer call in Sydney Island. Now, what I'm getting at with this story here is is that the British Columbia Society for the Protection of Cruelty against Animals, the BCSBCA, they're sort of like British Columbia's equivalent of PETA down in the United States. Uh, they, uh, the SPCA looks, has runs pounds, um, animal care facilities, shelters, I think they call them all over the province. So this is where, um, stray dogs and cats and various pets are brought in and cared for and rehomed and all that great stuff. But they're also an anti-hunting, anti-trapping animal rights organization that gets involved in all types of wildlife stuff. And making these position statements against hunting and trapping. They made position statements against grizzly bear um, hunting back in 2016 as well. So the crazy part of this story is they said they support or they're not opposed to the mass deer call on Sydney Island because the science supports the need to eradicate deer in the national park. One of the reasons that the BCSPCA is supporting the mass deer call in the national park is that it would stop the ineffective killing cycle of seasonal hunting that has taken place over the last several decades. So this blows my mind in that the, because the other part of this is the BCSPCA is animately opposed to the wolf control program in the endangered caribou recovery areas because they said there's no science that supports that the wolf control program is helping endangered caribou recovery when there's tons of science supporting that it's working quite well but in this case where the science is questionable on one how many deer there is in the national park and two whether or not regulated hunting is actually helping with deer population control they're fully supporting it because if you get rid of all the deer you get rid of the hunting seasons so they're supporting of eradicating the deer so that the killing cycle of hunting seasons can come to an end so it kind of makes me think are they are the bcsbca against the wolf control program because if they can get the wolf control program stopped, the caribou will go extinct, therefore bringing about the end of any future opportunity of Indigenous and non-Indigenous hunters from hunting caribou again. So seems crazy, but if they're willing to support a call of deer on Sydney Island, because it means the end of hunting, why in in my mind i'm questioning whether or not they're thinking the same thing if the caribou actually go extinct then we don't ever have to worry about the caribou being subjected to a killing cycle of a hunting season again in the future it's crazy but um yeah makes me really wonder about what the SPCA is really about are they a lot like PETA down in the US where they run the animal shelters as their means of putting puppies and kittens on calendars to get donations so that they can run these campaigns to bring about the end of hunting and trapping. So weird position to come out and support a deer call because it'd bring about the end of hunting. (laughs) Uh, So speaking of caribou, but jumping up to Nunavut, so in September, um hunters harvested 10 caribou where tissue samples were sent off to the federal government um uh wildlife health testing lab and they confirmed the presence of a parasite in those caribou uh tissue samples and a parasite that causes uh muscle swelling and swelling of the connective tissues uh in the fascia in uh, the caribou's muscles. The Nunavut government has said <clears throat> that they've had an increase in the uh, numbers of sick and diseased caribou that were that were reported to the government coming from the western part of uh Nunavut, so up against the Northwest Territories um, uh, border. They're the Nunavut government is continuing to encourage hunters on the land to bring in caribou so that samples can be sent off so they can get a good representative understanding to get uh, an, uh, a sense of how significant this parasite outbreak is in the caribou in Nunavut. I don't know exactly what this parasite does to the caribou, you know, as far as their survival. My thoughts are. If the parasite is um, causing inflammation of muscles and connective, connective tissue, that is probably limiting an individual animal's ability to migrate and to avoid predators, so it probably is a pretty serious concern caribou are a concern. Their populations are a concern all across the Arctic. So a parasite that they're seeing increases in that have the ability to potentially increase mortality and survival of caribou in the wild um, is also a concern. Jumping back over to Ontario, uh, a trapper was um, convicted this fall Uh, violations of the wolf and coyote trapping regulations in Ontario. The individual trapper pleaded guilty to have left out 14 snares on his registered trap line after the wolf and coyote trapping season had closed. Uh, The individual pled uh, guilty to the charges in an Ontario court and was fined $2,850 and received a four year trapping license suspension. So, and he has to take the trapping course over again before resuming trapping um, uh, on his licensed trap line in five years from now. So, that's a pretty severe penalty uh, for forgetting uh, 14 snares on the trap line. So, was it an honest mistake or was someone trying to catch some uh, additional animals after the seasons closed? Um, I don't know. Generally, by the time March rolls around in a lot of areas, fur quality starting to drop. And the snares were actually found at the beginning of April. <clears throat> so I don't know whether it was just an oversight, forgetting them, something happened. But, anyways, the track were actually pled guilty and received a pretty big fine and a four-year trapping license suspension. So ending off on a positive kind of story, uh, Alberta you know, is really proactive in a lot of areas of wildlife management and habitat protection and habitat management. And this next story uh, exemplifies that. The Nature Conservancy of Canada, uh, an uh, independent conservation organization, has done a lot of work in the Prairie Provinces of developing conservation covenants with families that own large ranching operations. And essentially what those conservation covenants do is allow ranching operations to continue. But when the family passes on that No holder of those lands in the future could ever turn those over for development, housing developments, golf courses, gravel pits, campgrounds, like you name it. The conservation covenants are registered against the land titles and specify that the land has to be kept in perpetuity uh, as a cattle ranching operations with provisions to protect native habitats, primarily being the short grass prairies. So an announcement was just made, uh, the Nature Conservancy of Canada and the Bechtel family, who owns 323 acres uh, outside uh, or near police outpost Provincial Park west of Carraway in Alberta, has entered into a conservation covenant to protect the family's 300 and something acres This has been a family run cow calf ranching operation that's been using sustainable rotational grazing practices on this 300 acres in Alberta since 1917. So the family cares so much about the land and the natural prairie grasslands that are on their property that this conservation agreement will ensure that those values, those natural grassland values, will be protected into the future, but it can still be maintained as a working landscape for cattle production, but protecting natural grassland values and all the wildlife that are associated with the natural prairie grasses. So this is a really good story. I actually did a little bit of upland game bird hunting on a massive piece of land uh, in the foothills of Alberta called the Waldron Ranch, which the Waldron brothers Uh, entered into a conservation covenant agreement with the nature conservancy of Canada quite a few years ago. And the cool thing about these NCC lands, these conservation covenant um, cooperative land agreements with the ranching families is um, they now allow the public onto the lands and you can hunt on the Waldron ranch. So hopefully hunting will be uh, allowed and the public can use Um, The Bechtel family ranch, um, there's rules like on the Waldron ranch, there's rules about access, non-motorized gates, all types of things. But I mean, it was cool. I went out with a friend and we just parked and um, the Waldrons were there and they were uh, way up north of us um, driving some cattle back. And so we went off in a different drainage into some of the coolies and stuff looking for, for sharp tails last day of the season. So really cool relationship. Um, between protecting native ecosystems, maintaining a working landscape in Alberta, <clears throat> but ensuring these lands don't become housing developments uh, in the future. And that is a really cool uh, feel-good story uh, for December. Thank you to the Bechtel family in Alberta for, for looking out for conservation for future generations to come. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada. And Merry Christmas to everybody. Thanks for everything. Uh, We will get out a final uh, year-end wrap-up episode for the Around Canada podcast uh, for the end of December. But Merry Christmas, everybody. Thanks for listening.